This is your host, Silas Dean, and this is a Creep Time original podcast, The Sinister. So make sure to go check out Creep Time, the podcast, right after this show. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is easily one of the most disturbing stories that I have personally come across in a long time. And I'm not entirely new to it. I knew this story. And it's kind of funny because when I first heard it years ago, I was thinking about a different case that I covered, which was the South End Werewolf, I believe. And it was really talking about lycanthropy and the idea that something could be halfway between the worlds of mythology and science. Could a human be half animal? I don't want to give too much of a top line for this, so with that, I am just going to say this story is about a cannibal frat boy. At first glance, it is entirely shocking. I mean, even the headline of it is shocking, but it really is a deep cut into extreme waves of a mental health crisis, something that was overlooked by people in his life and ultimately something that was entirely fatal. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Sinister with Silas. I'm your host, Silas Dean, and every week I come right on here. I hang out with you right after an episode of Creep Time, the podcast, and I cover the eeriest stories that I know. So please follow and subscribe to the podcast and turn on the bell notification so that you never have to miss an episode. And I would also appreciate a review and if you could share the podcast to help support the stories of The Sinister. Thanks again for stopping by. And with that, let's get into the story. So where can a story like this even begin? We're going to first focus in on our focal point. This is Austin Haraf. He was born on December 21st, 1996 and grew up in Palm Beach, Florida. And, you know, for anybody who doesn't know this or isn't familiar with it, Palm Beach, Florida is actually an extremely, extremely nice area. A lot of people actually say it's comparable to the families that live and grew up in the Hamptons. So he was a well-off kid. He came from a good family, two working parents, and then something really went wrong by the time he hit college. And something that really stuck out to me when I was kind of doing a deep dive on the story was just how oddly normal all of his life seemed to be. I mean, there was nothing that really stuck out to me as this would have been a turning point or this was something that could have gravely affected his mental health. He seemed very well-adjusted. His parents did get divorced when he was about 
13, but it sounded like him and his sister were very well adjusted to it. They stayed with their mom. Their dad did not move far away. He was still very much a part of their lives. And by the time he hits high school, he's excelling. I mean, he is one of the top kids in his class. He is a student athlete. He was pretty big for his age. He was about 200 pounds, six feet tall. So naturally, he played football for pretty much all of high school, and he even wrestled for a year or two. And what was also interesting was that his father and really his whole family, they just saw him as such a happy, sort of non-confrontational kid that they actually named him Happy Boy. That was his nickname, which is really chilling in the context of this story and everything that happens. So Austin had a mission, even from a young age. By the time he had entered high school, he was really committed to this idea that he wanted to get himself on a career path where he could help other people. So he eventually would settle on medicine and was fortunate enough to get admission to Florida State University in their pre-med program. It would seem in his first year, his freshman year, like he was acclimating really well to college, right? He wasn't in sports anymore, but he was getting great grades. He had a girlfriend. He seemed to be excelling. But underneath the surface, there was something else going on that we would later find out. Austin was struggling. He was struggling pretty severely, and he really felt depressed. He felt isolated by his peers. He was often journaling, and these journals would all be uncovered much later in the story, where he just really was having a tough time breaking out of his shell and being assertive. All of these things were weighing on his mental health, and I found this so interesting when I was looking at this. He started taking Vyvanse. Now, for anybody who knows the Bryce Laspisa case, when he went to college, I think it was his freshman or sophomore year, he also started experimenting with Vyvanse and I believe was drinking heavily with it. And I'm not trying to necessarily conflate the two entirely to say that Vyvanse is the culprit here, but I do find it interesting to look at the parallels. I mean, with Bryce Laspisa, with Austin, these were two young men their first year in college, it's a huge adjustment and they start experimenting with Vyvanse and there is a rapid, rapid decline in their mental health, in really in their grasp of reality, as we would come to learn. So here's what we know. We have this underpinning that Austin is clearly not doing well at school, but his family, they have absolutely no idea. He's putting up a very good front. So where does it all go wrong? Later in the investigation with this, they would actually seize his computer and they found a disturbing litany of computer searches. This was kind of towards the end of the school year, right? And we know that he's been suffering from these anxious and depressive thoughts. We know that he's been experimenting with hard drugs. He's definitely been taking Vyvanse. We believe he was taking other hallucinogenics. And he started searching things like, am I crazy? How do I know if I'm crazy? What do I do if I'm crazy? Do I need to sleep? You know, he's starting to kind of, it's that weird halfway point where he's almost aware that he's on the tipping point of something going very wrong. I just don't think anybody, including him, could have ever imagined how serious and dark this would turn. What I do think is different about this story is that when he does come home for the summer, his parents and really his entire family, they almost immediately know there's something wrong with Austin. His entire personality seems totally different, and on his very first night home, he did this very strange thing where he took his bed in the middle of the night and he moved it down to the family garage. And of course, when his family discovered this, they were like, why would you do that? And he said he was guarding them from the demons, demons that were plaguing the house, and he had to make sure he was in the garage because that was where they would be coming from 
he was also walking through the halls of the home all night long, knocking on everyone's door to loudly shout to them middle of the night and say, I'm keeping you safe from the demons. Now, his, this is like day one, seriously. So it happened very, very fast. And I think what they did was by the morning, they had all just locked their doors. They were terrified. By the morning, they really interrogated him and they were like, what is going on? Why are you acting this way? Are you on drugs? He comes clean and talks about all the different drugs that he's been using. And they think that is the culprit. For not one second do they even suspect that he might be mentally ill or he might have a mental health crisis. They think this is the result of him being on something. So they kind of regenerate their own efforts into getting him clean, trying to make sure he stays clean. But the thoughts and the odd behavior did not change. So then comes this other scenario where the family kind of has an internal meeting and they say, we have to do something about Austin. Something is wrong with him. They wanted to enact the Baker Act where someone could be involuntarily held in a psychiatric facility for a 72-hour evaluation, right? Just to assess, are they a danger to themselves? Are they a danger to anyone else? The only problem is that this was just about a day or two too late. So there is this one day that I really want to focus on where I think some of the worst of Austin's behavior is sort of exhibited around his friends, right? So he ends up leaving his home. He goes to a friend's house, like cold calls or cold knocks, I guess in this case, knocks on the door, and he asks him point blank when he opens the door, what year was I born? Immediately, his friend is like, okay, there's something off with Austin. He's like, 1996, like, are you okay? Austin just takes off, doesn't even acknowledge him, doesn't say goodbye. So the friend calls Austin, he convinces him to come back to his house, and he's like, how about you stick with me for the day, basically, so we can like, try to keep an eye on him, and he arranges for him and maybe a few other friends, they're all going to go to the beach that day. While they're at the beach, Austin says, I have to step away, I have to go home to do something. He goes back to his house to change his outfit. When he comes back, this is a warm day at the beach, he is in like a heavy football jersey, long sleeves. He's wearing really long, thick sweatpants. He has two watches on, and he's wearing sunglasses. Very bizarre outfit. Very, very bizarre. And everybody takes notice, of course. Like, they're all kind of on edge. Like, something seems off with Austin, which is shocking. I'm like, why are we, why are we just, like, pacifying the situation and just, like, feeling it out, waiting it out? Like, this is clearly not normal behavior for him. Whatever the Baker Act was or whatever they were planning to like put him on a psych hold, it has to be immediate. You can't wait for those things because I don't know what you're waiting for. Anyway, what was interesting about this exchange at the beach was that it wasn't just friends he was around. His sister was also in attendance. So she had all the prior knowledge of everything that was going on at the home. Like Austin is talking about demons and he's patrolling the hallways. He's moving his bed downstairs into their garage. So all of this behavior kind of boiling up to this point where he's in this strange outfit, everybody's sort of laughing and like snickering who doesn't really get it quite yet. He starts lashing out at them and he was like, if you tell me I'm crazy, I'm going to effing kill you to everybody. Everyone kind of freaks out for a second. And then it seems like he cooled off and he was like lucid again. So it's like this rapid flux between he's volatile and he's crazed and then he's calm and he's lucid. His sister approaches him and then he says to her, did you know I'm half horse? Did you know I'm a mortal? These would be shocking 
statements to me. I mean, to read the story, and maybe it was different in real life, but to say something like that, that's not somebody who can wait another few days to get professional help. But basically, she kind of calls him out on that. She's like, you need to see somebody, like a psychiatrist, like there's something that I think is wrong with you, Austin. And again, it seems like he snaps back into that like lucid state again. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I think you're kind of right. Like, I probably do need to see somebody. So that's smoothed over for now. So the next phase of the night is this plan where basically him, his sister, his friend, I think even his girlfriend, they're all going to go to this restaurant called Duffy's. They're going to be meeting Austin's father and his girlfriend, or maybe she might have been his wife. Basically, they're all going to have like a sit down dinner. Again, I don't know why we're doing all of these activities when clearly this is a kid who's very unwell, but it's crazy because you actually see him. Well, before they even get to the restaurant, Austin pulls a stunt on the road where he turns to his sister and he's like, I need to test my immortality. Basically tries to dart into traffic, run to traffic. She grabs him, pulls him back. But rather than be like, okay, you need to be in the hospital immediately. Back to dinner, you know, going to Duffy's, going to the restaurant. It's kind of a similar feeling to the Bryceless Pizza case, really, because it's a family that almost seemed like they were in denial because to admit to just how scary this behavior is, is actually terrifying from a family's perspective. From the outside, we can look at it and we're like, no, 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 this is somebody who needs to be in an institution. They need to be evaluated by professionals. But maybe it was entirely different. But what's interesting about the actual restaurant is that we see most of this on camera, like the full exchange of what's going on there. Basically, to keep it short, he comes in, father, father's girlfriend, all everybody else, sister, whatnot, his friend, his guy friend, they all sit down at this table. Austin gets up. They think he's going to the bathroom. He leaves the restaurant, then comes back in and sits down. Then gets up again, this is like a few minutes later, leaves the restaurant entirely once again, does not come back. He was actually walking close by to his mom's house because his mother heard somebody come in. She goes downstairs to the kitchen. She finds Austin in the kitchen. He is downing vegetable oil. And he has coated the counters with Parmesan cheese, which he was also shoveling into his mouth. So she completely freaks out. She pulls the vegetable oil from him and she's like, what are you doing? He's got it all over his clothes. And again, I don't understand why they're still continuing to like keep with the schedule of the activity because basically she's like, go upstairs, change your shirt, get all the oil off. He changes his clothes, gets in her car with her. She just drives him back to the restaurant. He goes back in. We see this on camera. He sits down again And it kind of looks like his dad and everybody at the table, they're just sort of in shock. They must know at this point. I'm sure somebody called somebody. This is about 2015 at this point, just for any context. And his dad says something to him, which I believe what his sister said was, what is wrong with you? Austin grabs his father by the collar and the neck and pins him against the booth for a second and then throws him away from him, gets up, walks out of the restaurant. He's gone. They don't know where he went. It was finally at this point where I believe they called the police to report him missing to say he is unstable. Finally. But it was too late. So where did Austin go? Now about four miles away from this restaurant, a woman, 
She was 53 years old. Her name was Michelle Mishkan. She was sitting in her open garage watching TV. It was sort of like a decked out um, space with like Christmas lights. It looked very Florida. Um, And it was really like a lounge space where her and her husband, John Stevens, who was 59, they would often hang out there, right? It was warm. It was the summertime. It was the evenings. They would keep that garage open. This would prove to be fatal for both of them. Now, the start of this moment really comes from the neighbor, Jeff, when he sort of perks up because he hears something kind of going on across the street. He lives directly across from Michelle and from John. He hears a woman scream. It's Michelle. So he runs outside, and what he immediately sees is Austin in the driveway and the Michelle sort of standing there terrified because he is about to attack her. As he runs up closer, Austin throws Michelle to the ground and begins violently beating this woman, completely unprovoked. Now, Jeff, he just doesn't know what to do except to run and grab Austin to try to pull him off of her. Austin immediately stands up, turns around and says, you don't want a part of this, and goes back to beating her senselessly on the ground. I mean, she is getting pummeled into the pavement of her driveway. So Jeff goes straight back and pulls him up and throws him straight down to the pavement, but not before Austin sort of swings And something happens, and Jeff isn't entirely sure at the moment what it was. He feels a really intense sting on the side of his head and neck. He has been stabbed in about five different places just from that one scuffle of getting him down to the pavement because Austin is carrying a knife. He is seriously bleeding. It might have been a fatal stab wound. He's not really sure how long he has, so... Jeff figures the only chance that they have there is he has to go and call the police. So instead of running back to his place, he actually tries to lure Austin away from her. So he runs into Michelle's home, locks all the doors behind him, and then he runs out through the back door and around the property as a way to sort of like detour him if he was being followed, but he never actually looked to see Austin was not following him. But he does make it back to his home, locks the door, and he calls 911. So police are already en route at this point, right? What is happening to Michelle? It's actually, it's really chilling to think about the testimony from Jeff and what he could hear while he was on the 911 call. All he's hearing outside of his window are the screams of what could be Michelle, what could even be John at this point, if John was back home and in the garage, and these animalistic grunting and growling noises that are coming from Austin. Completely unexplainable, but then the next part of the statement of what actually went down this night, it's going to come from the officers who are the first responders on the scene. So these two officers, they basically make their way up to the driveway. They're not really sure what they're walking in on. It is a frantic and terrifying scene, and it's dark at this point. All they see is a pool of blood that is streaming down from the garage area between two large vehicles. So they make their way around the vehicles with their guns drawn. What they find is chilling. There appears to be a man who is lying on the ground, completely in shock, sort of softly whispering, help me, help me. It's John. It's John Stevens. And on top of him is Austin. Now, it was kind of dark. There's a lot of blood. They can't really tell what exactly is going on and what Austin is doing. But as they get closer and try to get him off with their guns drawn, what they realize is that Austin has his hand and is repeatedly reaching into John's mouth, yanking out pieces of his cheek, 
biting them off and then swallowing them. He is eating off John's face. This was shocking and horrifying. I mean, they initially tried to think about if they were going to shoot Austin, but they couldn't do so without risking shooting John. So one of the officers says, I'm going to tase him. Shoots the taser straight into Austin's back. No effect. He does not even realize that he's being pursued, that there are cops around him. He's been shot by a taser. They don't know what to do. So the other officer gets in the front of them, kicks Austin square in the face just to get him off John. Again, he is completely unfazed. He just gets right back on top of him and digs back inside of John's mouth. These cops are watching him eat this man viciously in front of them. They're they're almost entirely helpless. So one of the officers, the one who was originally kicking him in the face, he doesn't know what to do without, you know, trying to risk shooting John. He just keeps repeatedly kicking him in the head. And it Austin just seems completely unfazed. It's almost as if he has like a superhuman strength. And it's in this moment, another set of officers pull into the driveway. They have a canine. So the other officers are screaming, bring the dog, bring the dog, release the dog. The dog comes clamps down right on Austin's arm and pulls it back extremely hard. Austin rips his arm out of the dog's jaw, basically shredding teeth through his arm muscle. The dog goes in again, another clamp on the same arm. Same thing again, rips his arm out of the jaw. He has severe damage to his arm. He is so intently fixated on eating John's face, just digging through this man's cheek and mouth and neck. He's pulling chunks of flesh directly out of his face. It's insane. So the dog goes in again, pulls the arm back. This gives one of the officers just enough space to kick Austin one more time. It actually is so forceful, it kicks Austin backwards. He falls off of John, and then this officer is able to basically subdue at least one of his arms in a handcuff. It's in this moment that as he's dragging Austin Away from John, in this handcuff, Austin turns to him and screams to the officers, kill me, kill me, I'm eating humans, kill me. They had never seen anything like this. In all their years, collectively, it took three full officers to completely subdue him. He had that much strength. But finally, Austin is subdued, he is placed in a car, and then they can finally inspect the scene. Now, Michelle was first found in the garage. She was killed from blunt force trauma from the horrific beatings. John would not survive his injuries because he had came home to find Austin horrifically beating his wife, and that was when Austin effectively ate him. He died from those injuries as well. Really, the only survivor would be Jeff in this instance. He was able to survive his stab wounds, and of course, Austin would survive as well. But it wasn't quite that simple. Austin was actually entirely unresponsive and his organs were shutting down and nobody knew why. Immediately after the arrest, he was rushed to the hospital and they found that he had ingested some sort of like a lawn chemical that was found in Michelle's garage. So he goes into a coma for a full 11 days, eventually comes out of that coma. He makes a full physical recovery and then begin the interviews. What could have compelled him to do this? Now, initially what doctors thought was he had to have been on something. It must have been something similar to bath salts or maybe angel dust, something that would have been consistent with hallucinations or extremely violent outbursts, eating people. 
But to their shock, when they did a toxicology report, all they found in his system was a very, very small amount of THC. And they actually believed during the attack, he was probably completely sober, meaning this was entirely in his mind. What disturbed them even more was the interview when they initially asked him, why did you do this? What he claimed was that when he left the restaurant, he saw two mysterious dark figures with white faces at a distance who were following him. He believed they were demons. So he just started running in the other direction and was somehow able to obtain a knife. We don't exactly know where he got it. I'm going to assume he took it from his mom's house when he went to go get the oil and the Parmesan cheese. So he's running, runs those four miles, ends up in a neighborhood that he does not know, sees Michelle in her garage, goes up to her hoping that he can get her help to fight these demons. She's terrified because he seems insane. And then he said he believed she was a witch. So he just started to beat her senselessly. He then remembers seeing a dark figure in the doorway of the garage which we can most likely assume might have been John, but anything after that was a complete blur. He does not remember any of eating John's face. He does not remember his fight with Jeff and stabbing him. None of it, he remembers, until he woke up in the hospital. Now, what was shocking to me was that initially, the public really didn't receive his story in any sort of sense of insanity, which seems crazy because I can't even imagine that anybody could eat another person and, you know, exhibit such a violent attack and not be insane. Now, the doctor who eventually evaluated him, this was Dr. Resnick, he had a very different opinion about the whole thing and actually published a 38-page report about Austin and his mental health. What he concluded was that Austin was very clearly in some sort of a psychotic state and he was not cognizant whatsoever of the threats to his own survival. No matter the threats of the guns pointed from the police officers, no matter the kicks to the head, being tased, the dog, none of it seemed to phase him, which in this doctor's opinion would count as someone who was clearly not grappling with their own reality. He was intently fixated on one task and one task only, which was eating John. And this is the interesting part because it's relayed back to clinical lycanthropy. And I'll get you the exact definition of that. So clinical lycanthropy, it is also known as lycomania. It is a rare psychiatric syndrome that causes patients to believe they are turning into a wolf. It is very, very uncommon. It is not widely understood. And like I said before, this dates back a very long time because there were many people who thought that this sort of blurred the line between mythology and science. It is also commonly referred to as werewolf syndrome. People often associate this as well with dissociative identity disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and of course, clinical depression. And there is also evidence to suggest that delusion disorder can be triggered by stress, alcohol, or the use of uncontrolled substances. Austin would actually give an interview, I believe the same year that this all happened, where he would go on to profusely apologize and break down when talking about the family when talking about what he did. He claims he doesn't remember it. He claims he doesn't know why he did it. And he knows there's something deeply wrong with him that he doesn't understand. Eventually, Austin was found not guilty by reason of insanity. But of course, it would mean that he would have to spend most likely the majority of his life in confinement. 
It's such a tragic and senseless story because truthfully, this really is something that could have been prevented if people had acted sooner, if people had taken symptoms more seriously, if people had not allowed him to leave their sight or call the police or admit him to the hospital just even a sliver sooner, this whole thing could have been avoided. And I know Michelle and John's family, I know they hold resentment towards him. They had actually sought the death penalty, but again, because of his insanity, it was not going to be an option. So where does this all sort of end up? Austin is 27 years old as of this year. He is still in a long-term care facility that will treat his mental health. And according to reports, he has been stable for a very long time. He has been on routine medication. It has kept him sane. It has kept him lucid. And he is profusely, profusely devastated and sorry for what he did. But it's really a question that has come from the family of the victims. They don't necessarily know or buy that he wasn't lucid when he did that. There's a lot of blame to share in all of this. And, you know, a lot of the family of the victims, they have pointed the finger directly to his parents for their inaction, which ultimately led to this tragedy. And the fate of Austin is kind of uncertain. I don't know that he'll ever be released from confinement for what he did. I do believe that he could be stable. I do believe that he could be entirely lucid and he could probably be a decent person just roaming within the walls of this facility. But whatever lies in store for Austin is yet to come. Thank you so much for sticking around for this episode. I know that was a lot to take in for an episode of The Sinister, but Bybee is the sinister. So Thank you for sticking around, you guys. I'm going to catch you on the next one. Make sure to go check out the new episodes of Creep Time, the podcast, as well as Creep Time After Dark right after this show. And I'll see you next week.